I know I don't have to tell you this, but this episode is only for educational purposes. It is not nutrition or personalized medical advice. We want you to get the most from the episode, but to keep that in mind as well. And we really hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Quiet the Diet podcast. I'm your host, Michelle Shapiro. I'm an integrative functional registered dietitian in New York City who has helped over 1,000 clients reverse their anxiety, approach their weight lovingly, and heal their digestive issues. I help clients to access liberating self-awareness through humor, nuance, and compassion. I lost 100 pounds the wrong way so that you don't have to. You know, without all the physical and psychological damage that comes with it. Whole body health requires so much more than just going on a restrictive diet. The Quiet the Diet podcast offers a holistic look at what it takes to be your most vibrant, healthy self, all while doing it on your own terms. I want to help you quiet the diet so you can focus on all the other parts of your amazing health and life. Welcome to the pod. I can't wait to explore the magic of functional nutrition and medicine together. Episode four of the Quiet the Diet podcast marks the start of a three-part series focused on different macronutrients. So this episode is on protein, and I had the just utmost ridiculous level of honor to bring on my dear friend, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon, who has been donned the queen of protein by me, but definitely by other people too. This episode really focuses on protein and muscle and the hotly contested topic of is meat consumption really bad for us? We touch on if it's potentially positive for us and what we can do to incorporate protein into our our diets and our lives. In the show notes, you'll also find a guide for incorporating more protein into your diet and a bit more from our team. But I really want to talk about the star of the show today. And I could not be, again, more freaking excited to bring Dr. Gabrielle Lyon to you. As a practitioner, she is someone who constantly advocates for her patients. As a friend, she's exactly the same way. And she's one of the most vocal voices in the conversation around protein and and really animal consumption as well. And I, I believe that the research that Gabrielle's conducted or interpreted is pretty conclusive. And I think the way that she presents information is is so translatable for you, the listener. And I think what she has to say is probably one of the most important messages that I'll ever have the opportunity to share on this podcast. I'm going to tell you a little more about Dr. Gabrielle Lyon. She is a Washington University Fellowship-trained physician in nutritional science and geriatrics and is board-certified in family medicine. She completed her undergraduate degree in human nutrition, vitamin, and mineral metabolism at the University of Illinois and continues to be mentored over the last two decades by one of the world-leading protein experts, Dr. Donald Lehman. Dr. Gabrielle Lyon works closely with the Special Operations Military and has a private practice that services patients worldwide. You will not want to miss a minute of this episode with Dr. Gabrielle Lyon. It is one of the greatest honors of my career to be able to bring this beam of light in this space to you. And I just want to say that this conversation around protein, 
and animal consumption has become so hotly contested in society. And I think that this episode proves that if we can remove all of the kind of virtue signaling away from the conversation, we can really understand much more about the need for us to have adequate muscle mass and where we've really gone wrong and and what I think diet culture has gotten so grotesquely wrong, which is that we've, we've been so constantly focused on reducing fat mass when there's been kind of, you know, fat has been so villainized when there was really a hero in the equation, which is muscle mass. We also talk about in the episode how muscle mass is something that muscle itself is something that interacts with our body. It's not just something that sits there. And we'll learn a lot more from Dr. Gabrielle Lyon. Again, it is so ridiculously amazing that she is on. If we're doing a protein episode, it would be impossible to do it without her. I really hope you guys enjoy this episode and I can't wait for you to listen to it. Please enjoy. Today is my biggest day because I'm sitting down with one of the most intelligent, loving, compassionate, and incredible practitioners and people I've ever known, my dear friend, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon. Yay. You're freaking here. Yay. No pressure, right? (laughs) No pressure at all. There's never pressure with you because everything you say is so illuminating for people that every one-liner is going to change someone's life. So actually, if you are listening to this podcast right now, watching, please take out a notepad. You're going to want these gems from Dr. Gabrielle Lyon. So I might call you Gabrielle during the interview. I might call you Dr. Lyon. We might switch through and see what we feel. But Gabrielle is a really close personal friend of mine for many reasons and the type of friend and practitioner you want on your side. So we're going to cover your normal, really important information. When I say normal, I mean what you feel most passionate about, what you work with strongest, which is that muscle-centric medicine. I want you to be able to introduce yourself too. You'll have heard already a little bit about Gabrielle, but can you tell us about you and your path into medicine and what you believe in? And everything yeah, well, like that? the first thing is you might call me Dr. Lyon. You might call me Gabrielle. As long as you're not calling me other four or five letter words, we are totally <laughs> cool. I practice a kind of medicine called muscle-centric medicine. It really is the concept that muscle is the organ of longevity. We have this concept in the world, which, you know, is true that we really do have this obesity problem. But again, is it an obesity problem or do we have a midlife muscle crisis? And muscle-centric medicine really focuses on muscle. It's very solution-based in terms of all these things related to aging. It's so interesting because I don't think anyone outside of your scope and the people that you've taught would draw a line between muscle and longevity. Can we dig into that a little bit? Yeah, of course. Well, when we think about these discussions that we're having about aging and health in medicine, and you experience this as a dietitian, when we go to school, we are indoctrinated in a certain way of thinking. And we believe models. And for example, perhaps one of those models is obesity is at the root cause of X, Y, and Z. But Potentially, if we have that model wrong, then we're never going to get better at fixing whatever that issue is because we are simply looking at it through a perhaps incorrect lens. Sure. And that's really what I think that we're dealing with now is that we don't have this obesity epidemic or you know, we are not overfat. We really are under-muscled. And, and that's at its core what we really need to focus on. And 
Muscle as the organ of longevity is newer in the space of what is available to people, right? So right now we have this dichotomy of the fitness professionals, right? So we have fitness professionals and then, you know, in one camp, and then we have medicine. But the real magic is the interface between the two. And that's actually where we can move the needle for people as it relates to health and wellness. And I think that a lot of doctors like to feel different than fitness professionals. And I think fitness professionals feel different than doctors. Totally. But what you're saying is there's actually a bridge and the bridge is muscle. Yeah. And that's where the magic is going to happen. And your original question is, what does muscle have to do with longevity? Yeah. And I would answer and tell you it has everything Mm. to do with longevity. We know that our survivability against nearly all causes of disease, even cancer, is directly related to the quality of our skeletal muscle. Really powerful. I definitely want to talk about what muscle is because I think that that can be really confusing for people. I need to piggyback off of something else you said too because I want you to elaborate on this. First of all, the word obesity in my world obviously is a word that has a lot of sting for people and a lot of heat for people. I think the way I talk about obesity is that obesity is not a diagnosis, it's just a symptom, right? It just means this is where your body's at right now. I think you empower people even more by saying, this idea of obesity as being over fat versus under muscled, it gives tangibility for people and steps they can take as opposed to f- hearing this word epidemic that we can't fix right. and things. It feels like you're putting the power back into your patient's hands. That's absolutely true. Right now, every, you know, these things are very fat focused, fat phobic. We're talking about restricting carbohydrates, which again, could there be value in that? Yes. Are true. we talking about chronic cardio? That's, you know, the messaging around obesity has always been here's the problem. We have to we have to really focus on this obese tissue and, and that's what needs to happen. But that is very disempowering. And you and I were talking on my podcast actually about the biggest loser, the, mm. the biggest loser studies that, you know, you don't want to be in the cycle of trying to lose the 10 to 20 pounds over your entire life. The concept of always focusing on symptomology is like always focusing on the negative. Oh, totally. Yeah. You can never you get stuck in it, that. right? And, that, and that's so true. And exactly. I think especially because being quote unquote over fat is something that is so stigmatized and so hard for people because they're treated differently if they are perceived as being obese in society. I think this idea of having this pathway for people to take and also just taking like the morality out of weight Absolutely. so much. It's like, just get some muscle instead, right? It feels so much more doable and it feels so much more empowering, I think, for people too. It absolutely is empowering. So by shifting the focus from fat to muscle tissue, which again, you asked me the question, what is muscle? Yeah, what is muscle? Let's talk about Muscle that. is tissue under voluntary control. It is a, again, it is, there's a smooth muscle, which arguably is not under voluntary control, which would be the uterus, Right. And of course, there is cardiac muscle and then there is skeletal muscle. And when I think of muscle, obviously, and many people associate muscle with like exercise and muscle building and breaking down and rebuilding and all that. You say this really powerful thing, which it's so silly that we don't know this. A lot of dietitians don't even know this and don't blame them for it. Muscle as an endocrine organ. Tell me about that. Yeah. Muscle, again, this goes back to the original point that we were talking about that in the health space in fitness, we think about muscle as it relates to looking good in a bikini or exercise, aesthetic, right? Or sport performance. But skeletal muscle is the largest organ system. And uh, listen, if you're me, maybe it makes up 40% of your body weight. If you're my husband, who's a former Navy SEAL, maybe it makes up 90%. He looks partially like a gorilla. Or if you're me, we won't calculate. We don't have to talk about (laughs) it. Right. But 
just by pure weight, skeletal muscle as an organ system is going to be your biggest impact for health and wellness. Okay, so what does that mean and why? Contracting skeletal muscle secretes these components called myokines. And myokines are, it's, you know, they're peptides, what we would think of as like a cytokine. We've all heard of interleukin-6, yeah, right? Sure, the cytokine yeah. storm, all that stuff. But contracting skeletal muscle, when it secretes these myokines in particular, will just hone in on interleukin-6. It travels throughout the body and it interfaces with the immune system. Wow. So it helps dampen some inflammatory, inflammatory responses. It helps direct nutrient uh, utilization. So what does that mean? Carbohydrates, fats. This is very interesting. So it's above and beyond. It's actually what the skeletal muscle is producing above and beyond the actual exercise component, right? Above and beyond the ATP generating activity. And that wow. is really incredible. You know, it secretes uh, BDNF, things that go to the brain, right? The, these are components of skeletal muscle that are just not talked about. Not at all. And I think it's this idea that we've had historically, which is that muscle is just sitting there. It's not interacting with the rest of our bodies or anything like that. It's not the the word system, I think, is is revolutionary for people. The fact that it's an organ is revolutionary for people. The fact that it has hormonal implications, that it's, again, part of a larger system of your body. And, you know, even in the functional nutrition world, we're not talking about muscle that much. I think we're talking a lot more about our adrenals. I think we're talking totally. about, you know, things like that. Can you tell me? Is that weird? It is weird. What's the deal with it's that? The it's the dichotomy of understanding mm -hmm. and really thinking about muscle. Muscle has always been in the literature really based on the periphery. It's just like a peripheral tissue. But it isn't, right? Like it's the main event, exactly. baby. It's it is the thing. main it's event. I know. And it's it, and if I actually think about my time working in hospitals or anything like that, we can reflect from a conceptual level, of course, people who are wasted, people who have lost muscle mass, even weight overall, are more likely to be at risk for, you know, mortality risk in every single way. So the fact that this line hasn't been drawn is is odd, obviously. Is there a reason that you know of why people aren't talking more about muscle? I think some of the fundamental challenges with medicine is medicine is very algorithmic. And the way in which we think about things is what can we see? What is the problem that we can visually see? And for many people, it's weight. But oh. they don't think about, well, you know, what is actually under the surface and what can we do about the weight in which, you know, we're looking at? So I, I think that it's just perhaps lack of knowledge and really bridging the gap between the two. If you had a, a patient who had a, a tremendous amount of muscle mass and then weighed a lot because they also had an excess of body fat, would they have advantages over someone else who had a different body composition? Great question. Now, healthy muscle. So the, the research would indicate that heavier people have more muscle mass. Okay. Sure. People will say you well, gain fat and muscle kind of proportionally. It's proposed, right? And right. I mean, it right, totally depends on the person. But typically, the more weight you have to carry around, the more you're going to stimulate your muscle. It makes sense. Sure. But we've all seen a marbled steak. Just mm. because you have muscle doesn't mean that it's actually healthy tissue. And muscle is very important above and beyond exercise. It's very important for glucose regulation. Right. It's a primary site for glucose disposal, which is you know if you're eating some carbohydrates, it goes to your muscle. Sure. You got to get it out of the bloodstream, move it into muscle. Muscle is also a primary site for fatty acid oxidation. These are really critical things. But again, your question was, is someone who has more body fat and more muscle going to be healthier? 
health, really, when we're thinking about outcomes, is there, there's so many different things. Sure. But I would argue that it perhaps would be better to mitigate weight gain and really focus on the quality of the tissue. Absolutely. And in a tangible way, yeah. if someone was, let's say, under-muscled, and which like I'm sure a very large portion of us are under-muscled, right? What would be like a very first step yeah. someone would take for that? Well, I want to highlight something. Outside of sarcopenia, the diagnosis of decreased muscle mass and function, we don't actually have a clear definition of what under-muscled look like. Ooh, okay. Do you have a definition for yourself? I do, but no one's going to care. It's an appendicular lean mass index divided by height squared. No one's going to care about that. <laughs> but if you guys want to look, you can, you can check out my book. And again, when you go into the physician's office, you go in and you look at uh, body fat, body fat percentage, sure. maybe even BMI. And this just highlights the fact that nobody addresses skeletal muscle as a health endpoint. I can't imagine, I've, I've never had a conversation with a physician besides you about muscle mass. Again, it feels like it's almost like a, a material that's owned almost by the fitness community, uh, which is like fine and and But it's great. like, how did we miss that? I know. How do they have it? And the doctors but how, don't. But exactly. how, has it, how have we missed this incredibly important organ system? How have we been chasing fat for the last 50 years and wondering why people are not getting better? I'm going to pitch something to you too. If I have a client who's dealing with autoimmune inflammatory issues, could there be a cog in the system because they have so little muscle mass that the rest of the system can't be supported? Could this also be important for all functional medicine and, and nutritionists to, to hear about? 100%. In fact, there is some data to support that rheumatoid uh, individuals with rheumatoid arthritic conditions and au rheumatoid autoimmune conditions can get better with mm. exercise. So powerful. And we always think it's because like, it's good for your no, health. You it's know, actually it's like, because of the interface of these myokines. Which is really, really powerful for people to hear, too, because I think, again, you know, we think of the 90s. It's like all about cardio and all of that stuff. I think people are turning and down leg warmers and, and leg warmers. I think it's like late 80s and I, I'm with you. But yeah. those workouts with the leg warmer, it's all cardio, right? right? That was like it was so hot then. And it's always been fat loss. It's always been consumption right. of fat. And in the fact that it's always been consumption of fat and the word fat is always so enticing. What macronutrient do you feel like people have been missing out on? So basically, you're setting me up to talk about the health of skeletal muscle. And the health of skeletal muscle is really twofold. And that would be dietary protein and resistance training. Now, let's think about this. You could live your entire life without ever exercising. Now, I'm not saying that's good, but you could potentially do that, right? You would be alive, potentially, right? You would definitely be alive. Sure, yeah. How long could you go without eating? Like, uh, uh, you could dr My drink probably like three like days. Two hours, right, exactly. Right? So the reality is, while exercise is optional for many, eating is not. Nope, Food and nutrient is not. People will also say, well, Gabrielle, but exercise challenges the homeostasis of the body so much more dramatically than nutrition. I would say yes. However, 23, you know, like, I don't know, maybe 25% of the population is even meeting the basic recommendations for exercise. 25% of the population while nearly 100% of the population is eating. It's interesting that you're saying 25% because when I think of percentage of people with chronic illness, the number that comes up for me is 60 to 70%. And I'm wondering if our little graph has, you like know, how many two people are meeting How many people are meeting mm -hmm. the baseline recommendations for exercise? Maybe it's a little bit higher. And they're low, those recommendations, 150 minutes oh per week, and right? two days exactly. a week of resistance, uh, resistance training. Exactly. The percentage of people that are meeting that, most people are not meeting that. 
yeah, forget about scientifically, anecdotally, we know, right? People do not meet those goals. Right. So this same exact thing is actually carried over to protein, which again, you know, on this podcast, everything, we try to stay as middle as we can on things. You always do. The yeah. reason is because for some reason, protein has become, it's it protein and politics, extremely yeah. controversial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So much so that if you're new to Gabrielle Lyon, which you probably aren't because she's like the person, of the world and of knowledge well, you in know, my head. I, do, do you know that I actually got asked to be on the International Protein Board? You got am, asked to be on the I International Protein Board? I am so board. proud of this. Do you realize how proud? I mean, okay, yes. Am I a leadership for Hunter 7 and Navy SEAL Future Foundation? You know, but the International Protein Board. This is your big moment. This is this like is my big shining moment. queen of protein. This is like my big shining With moment. With the other queens on the board. Yes, it's inc an incredible accomplishment. Anyway. With, I think you said like, amazing researchers are yeah, there's in 17 it. researchers like, and me exactly but, okay just okay. a measly world-renowned doctor oh exactly you know your question is why is protein getting this like oh my craziness? gosh it's especially crazy. around and meat, you know and consumption of eating animal products which, which we can definitely talk about because again i believe that we can talk about things scientifically and factually without being harmful or triggering to other people by just giving actual information totally so it is really super contentious, especially right now, protein, meat, veganism. It's like, we know the nutrition world is split in a lot of ways, but there's definitely split in this way. So what's the deal with yeah, that? Yeah, we're going to talk about the deal with this. And I want to highlight something that I think that you do really well is you highlight that when we swing one way, that people always swing the other. Mm. The knee jerk. That's right? exactly what's going to happen here. So mm. I'm going to give you a few tidbits into what I think is going to happen in the future. Number one, first of all, I have never seen the vegetarian, vegan, plant-based push. So I've been a physician since 2006. I have been mentored for the last 20 years. I have really good Botox for the last <laughs> 20 years by uh, Dr. Donald Lehman, who discovered some of the concepts that I work really hard to take from bench to bedside, right? So what happened in the research, bring that to the general public. And I have never seen the emotional reaction and the zealot disrespectful behavior ever than I've seen within the last handful of years. It's unusual, right? Because for me, I realized that my message of being strong, having resilience, and eating meat is offensive to some people. But we have to understand that it's not to be offensive. It is not to be emotional. It is based on decades of experience and also looking at the literature and understanding that there are high quality nutrient dense foods that we need. Absolutely. And that it's not, you know, eliminating a food group, right? This idea of moving towards a plant based nutrition plan isn't bad because we can all use more plants. Sure, of course. But why does the conversation have to be divided that, well, if you are primarily plant based, you're not eating animal products? Why can't you be protein forward and plant based, right? So again, these are semantics. But semantics that I think are going to be damaging. And here's what I'm going to I'm going to say. Yeah. What do you tell us? I believe that who this really affects is the younger generation growing up. Ooh. Okay. So that means what is it called? Gen Gen Z. Gen Z. Gen Z. The ones that are really good on Instagram. Those guys. TikTok. With, TikTok. That's how not that yeah, we are. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. We're working on it. Uh, Nikki, you better get that TikTok together. If my team is listening, Alexia, you are definitely supposed to be Alexia, on that. Alexia, get on TikTok, yeah. okay? Yeah. So what's going to happen is we're hearing this narrative to become more plant-based and we are missing whole food groups. And I think that we are going to have an epidemic of osteoporosis like we have never seen before. 
I'm so glad you're saying this. So in ways of chronic illness, in a general sense, you know, my parents, I, I have like a couple floating autoimmune conditions, you know, like we all do, like we all do. And my parents, when I was younger, would be like, oh, like, why can't you just be normal and eat that? And I'm like, our bodies aren't the same as your bodies because you did not grow up with the same food system that I grew up with. Like, I think that Good point. we're going to see, you know, even the lifespan. I don't know what our generation's lifespan is going to be like. It's, we don't actually know that information yet. And I think if we continue, again, eating only one type of food, regardless right. if it's vegan or carnivore or something like that, we are missing out on the abundant benefits of all the other foods too. And I know for myself and for many other people, I was vegan for a long time and I was like a good vegan, really planned out my nutrients. I took supplements and stuff That's like impressive. that. And I still, yeah, well, I, it was like more of like a gag. Like I was like, I can do this for longer than other people can. And like, I'm, of course I was. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. You would do the same. Like if we say we're going to do I it. I did it. Actually, I was vegetarian for a long time. Because in the medical community, it was also kind of like a lot of cardiologists were pressing. And I still have a lot of cardiologists. We're, we got to talk a little bit about sure. cholesterol too. But but I still, to this day, am recovering from the nutrient deficiencies that I had from that time and from some of the gut damage too. Right. I don't think every single person who consumes a vegan diet obviously has nutrient deficiencies and gut damage. It just makes it a hell of a lot harder it does. to get those nutrients in. It's almost like meat is like the ultimate biohack, right? right? Because it's so nutrient dense already, even the smallest amount of it, you get your fill. Yeah. And I've thought a lot about this because we go through cycles of nutrition and there are periods of time in which an individual could be vegan or vegetarian. And I think that they can cycle through that it's really important to understand where an individual is in life. If a woman is perimenopause, menopausal, I am not going to say, well, you're already eating a thousand calories. So let's make those thousand calories, plant-based calories. What I'm going to say is, mm. man, you're eating a thousand calories. Okay. We need to pick the most nutrient dense foods to fill up that minimal amount of caloric intake that you have. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I don't, and haven't seen any really uh, successful vegan or vegetarians as they've gotten older. And it does exist, right? But the majority of individuals end up requiring some kind of higher quality protein. And again, and what's so interesting is, I'm sure this is triggering for a lot of people, but there's no, no emotion here about that. And so people who are listening, really, the listener has to check themselves. And if they are getting amped up on this, why? Again, if you want to get amped up on it from an animal protection reason, and Fine. that is something, if you are a person who just does not want to consume animals, there's no conversation here. That's It's a moral, ethical belief. We don't argue beliefs. We, we argue science. That's what, we, that's what we want to do. And I think that what's kind of happened is that people have these moral, ethical beliefs, and now it's, those are turning into systems of beliefs. And that's what we're seeing, that if you are vegan, you are virtuous and good. That's always been that way. And Do you know that? Tell me more. It's always been that way. So for my book, I have a book coming out called Forever Strong. I looked a lot of, at the history of where mm. we came to be because, you know, history is a funny thing. History repeats itself. Not in all cases of the Jew, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're yeah, a Jew yeah, too. Yeah, right? Same. But history repeats itself. Sure. And nutritional history actually repeats itself. Do you know that in the time of war, so around uh, World War II, 1940s, there were rationings that happened. So millions of soldiers were overseas and we were there. We, I wasn't alive. I mean, exactly. that would be really, really <laughs> the best Botox like in the world. Ever. <laughs> Everybody wants to know how I look this good for being so when 900 you were 25 years old. In, in the 1940s, yeah, yeah. yes. Is that in the 1940s, during World War II, they had rationing. It was taking all meat, not all, but like the majority of meat, butter, eggs, and shipping it overseas to feed the soldiers. Okay. Sure. Soldiers were rationed one pound of meat per soldier. 
for how long? Like a week? No, for the time that they were over there. What do you mean? One pound? Pound per day. Oh, per I'm day. Sorry. Oh, One okay. pound per okay. day. Oh, sure, per day. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Per day. This is what they were determined. So they mm. discovered early on that in order to support soldiers. Who needed muscle mass, obviously, needed to function. muscle and energy to, be alive. Yeah. to perform. They were moving these high-quality, nutrient-dense foods to them. They were on uh, home, like home base, whatever you call it, sure. the mainland encouraged to grow victory gardens and go more vegetarian Wow! to provide the nutrient-dense foods to the soldiers. That's really powerful. And that became also, I'm assuming then, if you did or didn't contribute these nutrient-dense things to soldiers, again, it becomes like a, it becomes a morality issue for right. people too. And so right? then Kellogg and people, you know, these, these food companies had to figure out ways, okay, so how are we going to feed people at home? This became very uh, carbohydrate-dominated, dominated, very package-dominated. But what's so interesting about that is that food was used as a sign of patriotism. Food was used as a way mm. to be virtuous and a An way American, to, right? Like an American. Like- and I think that what we're seeing now is almost self-imposed rationing. It's a different message. So it's a same outcome, different message. Eat more plant-based. Go, you know, do this. And the meat should go to somebody else. Isn't that interesting, though? So now, what? So in the 1940s, you see what's happening here, and this was about war. Okay, now what we're seeing now is it's the same outcome wrapped in a different message, and the message is: don't eat animal products, don't eat meat because it's bad for the environment. It it is the same exact message, and I have to say, and now my brain's going up. While we're in World War II, one of my places that I live in my brain much of my life. There, there are really powerful studies that have showed that, you know, grandchildren of Holocaust survivors who obviously went through extreme food restriction, not self-imposed, have later on self-imposing food restrictions. I almost wonder if there's not only a cultural element of this, yeah. but maybe a genetic element that's passed down too. So this self-imposed restriction as it comes to meat is a fascinating idea. Can we dig into that a little bit yeah. more? Yeah, tell me about so, that. So, you know, the quality of nutrition is a luxury. Absolutely. The current recommendations for protein really take into account a lot of things. You know, old nitrogen balance studies, which nitrogen balance is never an outcome for health. Like That's all the protein studies with the nitrogen balance. But I mean, nitrogen balance is not an outcome. And then you have to take in consideration the World Health Organization and how are we going to feed people globally? Of course. And these are real concerns. The challenge is, is here in the U.S., we have an overabundance of food. We have the opportunity to eat animal products. We have the opportunity to eat red meat, lean red meats, all these things. And it's so crazy to think that we are criticizing people for doing that. We're trying to lower our quality of our diet from a self-imposed place. And that's where I think education becomes really important and understanding that it is not this dichotomy, that it really needs to be how can we get a better plant-based diet, right? So the, the, the diet right now is already 70% plant-based, whether it's pizza, potato, or whatever. According to NHANES, NHANES data, it's already 70% plant-based. So how do we change the scale of improving plant, you know, the quality of the plants, but also understanding that, you know, for right now, 30%, even though animal products are only 30% of the food that we're eating now, it contains uh, the majority of our nutrients. Mm. calcium, zinc, selenium. So so when we think about what does the science say, 
how do we incorporate whole foods and high quality foods and understand that perhaps we might be being misled? For sure. And we don't even need to know who we're being misled by. We just need to know the current actual facts, which are telling us that, I mean, nutrient wise, incomparable vegetables versus meat. I mean, it, like the the density of nutrients. I mean, well, right. you know, we know plants are mostly water based, right? Of course, you're going to get some of those water soluble nutrients, but meat has, you know, protein, fat and no carbs, but protein and fat in it, which again, carnitine and serine, you know, exactly. creatine, fat soluble vitamins that we can't get some of the water soluble vitamins that we can't get from right. plants, which again, neither of us are refuting. We're not saying go carnivore today and, and, and not, not what we're saying at all, but at we're all. saying there must be a balance. Again, you know, you said something which I think is very astute of you. I really do feel middle ground about the way in which uh, food can be inclusive. I mean, it's so silly that I even have to have this conversation and the idea that we would eliminate whole food groups and that red meat is bad for us, especially when you're thinking about lean red meats. Of course. Yeah. I mean, I would argue that excess calorie consumption overall is bad for us. I would argue that excess body fat is bad for you. I would argue that outcomes of excess calories is an issue. Sure. I would not say, you know, red meat is bad for you. I would not say, you know, this one food is bad for you. I think that that's a very reductionist view. And when we have reductionist view, it, it just shows a level of incomplete thinking. I love the word reductionist when it comes to nutrition. It's so true. It is incomplete thinking because when other people are giving you morality or virtue signaling sentences, you actually lose your ability to think critically oh when gosh. you absorb them. If you think critically or, or apply science, I think every functional nutritionist and every functional doc comes to the same conclusion, which is that meat is super nutrient dense and we need nutrient dense things, A, to make life easier. The nutrients that you find in meat help your organs to run more efficiently. So, you know, we're agendaless. I get no no benefits of of being pro anything nutritionally. Mm -hmm. And I think both of us work really hard to remove biases and just see what actually works for people. So I would say if you are a vegan, you just got to work like 10 times as hard. You can totally do it. But you can you do it. You just have to work really hard. So I really like efficiency for clients too. I think this idea that we eat too much meat is just literally wrong. And a lot right. of this is just literally wrong. Can we talk about like yeah. just statistics and yeah, timelines? So it's about, uh, I think that we've reduced our red meat consumption at anywhere between, I think it's about 40%. I think it's over the past 30, 40 yeah, years or something about like that. Yeah, reduction. I of, know it's this, this chart I can imagine in my head. Mm -hmm. I don't know the exact year it starts, but yeah. poultry has like gone up a little yep, bit and meat right. has gone down yeah. drastically. Yep. And uh, heart disease, obesity have all gone up. I mean, again, cause, you know, uh, there's correlation, you know, causation is... Can you say, okay, well, heart disease and obesity have gone up, but red meat consumption has gone down. But somehow red meat is to blame for cancer. It is to blame for, you name, I don't know, just pick 15 different things in red meat. Let's talk about Ansel Keys. I'm kidding. Let's not talk about <laughs> Ansel Keys. But I think we know some of the derivation of this idea that meat and saturated fat and cholesterol. But let me ask you this. What yeah. happens if you have a, a lean piece of red meat what, what, where, where there's like less saturated fat? So then is right. red so meat bad if, for us? So even if the concern is saturated okay, fat so let's cholesterol. And by the way, know, I usually don't go into the fridge and I go, you know, on my top list of food today is going to open up the fridge and eat saturated fat. Exactly. Like who does that? No, it is. We exactly. have to think about food as a food matrix. And not so, nutritionism, which is when you look at only one piece of one nutrient as the understanding. Exactly. I, I mean, I'm pretty sure there's saturated fat in chocolate too. It's also, we know meat is so satisfying that when people, that's the, the miracle that our clients and patients see is like, they're like, wow, I feel so full from eating it. And it's like, <laughs> yes, because it's like actual filling nutrient dense right, right, food. Right. Your body actually needs those things. But they, so the, over time, 
We're consuming less red meat than we ever have before. And our rates of chronic illness are, the only word I could use, skyrocketing as time goes Mm -hmm. on. But we still cannot get it out of our head that cholesterol and saturated fat from meat specifically cause heart disease. Why is this so ingrained? Why can't we shake people of this? I I think it's a good question. It's kind of like... uh things die really hard, right? Yeah. So if there's an idea, to, you know, like cholesterol has been taken out of the guidelines, right? So in 2015, mm. there was a recommendation for cholesterol, which has since been taken out. It was of, like less than 200 milligrams per day which or has something. Which out of the guidelines. Yet, it it doesn't seem to have reached the masses or even the physicians. No, it certainly hasn't. But that means for decades before then, there's been a restriction on cholesterol. Exactly, which I, I mean, cholesterol is essential building blocks for like, most of the hormones in your body. It, it's like related to right. like so many integral parts of your immune system, endocrine system. Like we essentially need it. Also like the cells of your brain are like wrapped in fat. Like we need, you know, now, well, that explains it now. No, exactly. I'm just kidding. <laughs> exactly. I just want to hammer it in that there are some things that we're certain on in ways of nutrition now because the nutrition world feels so confusing and like, I don't know what's right. We're good on the like cholesterol eggs thing. are okay to eat. Your body <laughs> generates its own cholesterol. Yep. individuals that 75 percent of the cholesterol comes endogenously there you go our own body creates it there exactly. you go and there is a set point for that people have typically have a genetic set point we are not talking about people that have familial hypercholesterolemia hypercholesterolemia where perhaps a keto or high fat diet isn't going to be good or a high saturated fat sure. diet is not going to be good for those people but the majority of people the most important thing is to eat in a calorie-controlled manner, is to not overeat. Sure. And I think an easy way to accomplish that, again, because calories aren't my game as much as they're your game, which is like totally fine, is eating more nutrient-dense and filling foods will naturally allow you to eat in a way that's more conducive for weight loss if you want it to be. It doesn't even have to be so straight up that you're calorie counting. In Gabrielle's world, it totally might be. For me, it's just you're eating foods that you're actually full and then you don't reach for the hyperpalatable foods that totally. are created to make you overeat. I mean, these lit- like food like manufacturers actually like attach electrodes to people's brain and find out the exact reward response that you'll have from eating a certain food. Meat is not one of those things. We get an extreme satisfaction from consuming it, but there's no one. I mean, we can say there's engineering in ways of antibiotics and growth hormones right. and all those things, but it's the food that we have historically eaten that has kept us alive as a species, I, I want us to be, you know, a little less harsh on, especially- Are there any the, other foods that get as bad of a rap as, as red meat? I'm just curious. I, I can't even imagine one. And I wish it was like vegetable oil or something, I mean, you know? Exactly. Is there just one whole food that gets nearly as bad of a rap? No, I, I really don't think so. Isn't that weird? Yeah, it's, it's also just so, like you said, it's just so intense that it makes it impossible to disseminate information for people. And I'm just- I'm just saying, because this is our world yeah. that we're talking in, I'm good on the cholesterol heart myth. Like, we're we're good. I'm good on the red meat And then people stuff. will say, well, but it's a known carcinogen. Well, if they go back and they look at the IARC study and the IARC, the IARC study, the IARC committee, you have to look at what kind of evidence they're using. And low-quality epidemiology evidence is, is terrible evidence. We need to terrible see evidence. randomized yeah. control trials that would indicate X, Y, and Z. Sure. We cannot make blanket statements based on low quality epidemiology data because the unintended consequences of that are devastating for people. I think they've been devastating for people. 100%. I don't don't think people really understand this about you and I. The fact that 70% of, well, close to 70% now, let's say hardcore 60% of people are sick with some sort of chronic illness that's a lifestyle disease and preventable 
like it makes me ill on a daily basis. This is you have an approach that I feel and know scientifically is correct and proven. I have approaches. They they line up in most ways. But how like urgent does it feel for you to get this information out knowing that we know like we know Don't you think I would love to talk about something other than protein and muscle at you some point, though, right? It's <laughs> literally been, how many years this is years later. Exactly. People are finally starting to understand the importance of it. But I have been relentless in talking about it. And here's why. I'm going to tell you why. I uh, did my fellowship at WashU in St. Louis in geriatrics and nutritional sciences. And by the way, as a healthcare provider, I was absolutely not prepared for what mm. I had experienced. It took me a long time to get over it. When you see people at the end of their life and people with serious dementia, and you see what it does not to the person alone, but you see what it does to the family, and you see individuals that can't remember their children. I, you know, I have two little children. I can't imagine that. That, you know, you're sitting with people at the end of their life. And you and I did it for two years. And, you know, taking care of people in nursing homes and just seeing kind of the end result. And then at the same time, I was doing obesity medicine research. And I was looking at the interface between cognition and body weight and metabolic function. And I became really attached to one of the participants. And her name was Betsy. And she is a mother of three. And she's like in her 50s. And I imaged her brain. And her brain looked like an Alzheimer's brain, mm. an early Alzheimer's How brain. How old was she at the time? She was in her 50s. 50s. Oh, my gosh. So I knew, and obviously I didn't know for sure, but I, I, I knew that in a span of 10 years, what that trajectory was going to look like. Absolutely. And she was young to have this kind of brain disease that I was looking at. And this wasn't genetic. This was metabolic. This was metabolic and vascular. And I am a solution-oriented person. So I'm like, what the fuck are we missing? Why is it that I'm, you know, every Sunday I have to go to the nursing home and I'm, you know, this person fell and this person can't, you know, you know, can't remember my name. And I'm like, what are we missing? And then I'm looking at this brain image of this woman that didn't deserve it, that I felt that mm -hmm. I failed her. And I felt that the medical community had failed her because she was chasing those last 10 to 20 pounds her entire life, yo-yo dieting being destructive to her metabolism, feeling like she had failed. But I realized that we failed. Yep. And, and she had done all the things right. She did what she was supposed to do. All the things right. And it wasn't that they were all over fat. It was that the unifying thread of what I was looking at wasn't about fat tissue. It was about muscle. And that's why we were failing people. So I had this aha moment where I and realized, you've been screaming about it since, and I would be oh, the same way. Exactly. I mean, and here's why, is that I see all this stuff online, and I see these people fighting, and it's such nonsense, because at the end of life, when you're dealing with the, ger the geriatric population, and I'm not talking about people that are dealing with them, okay, well, you know, you're helping this patient walk across the, the you know, maybe, you know, you're helping them walk across the, the hallway for an hour a day. I'm talking about the physician provider who is sitting there with the family yep. dealing with this, you know, this little individual who is completely a shell of themselves, okay? It really changes your perspective of if you have the capability to help, you better do it. 
Absolutely. And so powerful. Thank you. So I realized that it, it was it's about the people in the middle. It's about right now, which is why I'm so vocal on social media and why I'm so vocal. I am not fighting for the people that are fighting amongst themselves. You guys want to do paleo? Fine. You want to do keto? I don't care. Well, you guys are all arguing. Are you really arguing because you care about the end result? No. You're arguing because you want to be an influencer. You want to do X, Y, and Z. Not arguing because you've been on the, the bedside of these dying patients. Sitting next to someone and holding them through the do darkest you know how many moment times of their I've life. Done that? More times than I would ever like to remember. It took me years to get over what I saw. Absolutely. And so, you know, right now you've got, you know, the 20 and 30-year-olds fighting about, well, I'm going to be plant-based and I'm going to be this. And what they don't understand is the information then trickles down to their parents. So let's say mm. I had Betsy and Betsy is listening to this narrative about how from she TikTok should, from TikTok, which is like true, whatever, that she should now, you know, decrease her protein intake and go plant-based. Any chance I had to help her now drastically diminished. Yep. Doesn't mean she yep. couldn't do it. Especially if she thought she'd be a bad person if she did it, so right? So this is why, you know, you have all these like people arguing in the middle. I don't care about them. You're going to go fight for people's lives instead. Yeah. Who we have to address is we have to be able to have clear conversations, transparent conversations to protect the people in the middle. I don't care. You guys can fight amongst yourself. But the other people that are looking to do better and are so confused. If you are one of the people who actually wants to change your health, this is the direction to be in. Because we're not going to sugarcoat it to help someone. We're right. only going to actually help someone. First of all, I can't thank you enough for sharing that story. And I've actually known about Betsy from from you before, too, because it really moved you on a personal and well, professional level. I mean, like, so can you much. imagine? So I actually worked in nursing homes. The reason I am a functional dietitian is because I worked in nursing homes, it's too. Brutal. For me, two to brutal. three years. Yeah. I mean, so my last stop, I'm never, ever going to do this and can never do this again, was I was giving... So part of the protocol for dietitians and nursing homes is that if there is noted weight loss and especially dementia patients, I had a, a very advanced dementia patients as well. If there was noted weight loss in them, you have to show that you're doing and providing an intervention mm -hmm. because obviously like weight loss, you know, 10% times six months need to put right. an intervention in place right. and prove that you're doing something. What are the interventions? Ice cream. And sure. Ice cream. And sure. Which is fine. Listen, at that point, I can appreciate For it. me knowing that any of those foods could influence them, even quality of life for a day yeah. was enough to make me ill. I mean, it, it, like the same way you're feeling like it's, I don't like being principled as a person. I like just to do the right thing and not be principled. But for me, I'm like, we know, we know, okay. Right. We know what's causing disease now. We know that hyperpalatable, highly processed foods, you know, omega-6 fats, high sugar, is driving a lot of these issues. And in that, meaning we're not getting the protein in our diet too. So the two sides of the same coin, totally. right? Right. Knowing that and being a normal, empathetic person, people can understand why we are screaming about this stuff all the time and why... Listen, as soon as everyone gets it, I'm talking about something else. I'm exactly. going to talk about like... But we need everyone whatever. who's waiting for yeah. us to get it yeah. and can, is waiting for us to hear it to get it. Because I can't... like both you and I are like super similar personality types too, which is that we want to be that person for people and be able to support people. I cannot express enough how much what Gabrielle you are saying is factual and how much it is not an interpretation. I mean, these things are factual. We are good. And if we know that and we sit on it, that makes us shit people. Like you can't sit on it. You can't favor totally. how people feel over this information. I know you are the number one person totally. to do that. I mean, I do. I feel as if you have a capacity 
to provide something, you have a responsibility to do it. Absolutely. And you exhaust that responsibility because again, you are out here (laughs) saying this message and you're like, I'd love to talk about other stuff, but it's like too bad. You're good at talking about this thing. Okay. But it's just important. Right. And especially now as it gets louder and there's this whole cancel culture, right? People, it's impressive. Well, we can't cancel signs, by the way, because it's literally well, you, against oh, the scientific me, it's, method. It's totally possible, <laughs> right? It's totally possible. And again, you know, we're just talking about prioritizing dietary protein. Do you have to be uh, plant-based or animal-based? No. Why would you even define it that way? How about we are eating high-quality animal-based products and people would say, well, you know, you can get all the protein you need from plants. Okay, how? try to do that for an 85-year-old demented patient. Good luck. Let me know how that goes. Who, by the way, have a, more cravings for sweet stuff, lower tolerance for salty foods and things like that. It's, it's just it's not really, really I, hard. Yeah. I believe that the negative outweighs the positive. Absolutely. So that when we think about the totality of food, we have to think about it in that way. It can't just be this, this one thing, red meat, this saturated fat. Like, it's not one thing. It's not. It's a trend. And the trend has led us into this place where, again, if I have a client who I know for a fact a certain food is going to cause a potential issue for them and I do not support them in either making a change or providing education for them, again, I'm taking it as a personal responsibility. What people don't understand is when you've sat with someone in those moments and you freaking know, I can't explain to you guys, Gabrielle knows this is, it's no, we're good. Again, I, I have to say like people want to debate back and forth we're not interested in debating back and forth because we actually are sitting with people. I'm sitting with people for five years watching their health improve or decline. We're going to we're gonna be the people they call. So we're actually completely feeling responsible for those things too. Yeah. And Absolutely. you know, another part of my mission is, again, my longtime mentor, Dr. Donna Lehman, is really to take the science and bring it to the public. Take that information that individuals have spent decades doing Again, the Dr. Donald Lehman is uh, one of my, be- I mean, he's my best friend and he's also my mentor and he's older. I know he's not listening to this podcast. If you are, I'm sorry, Don, but you know, and I want to be able to take that legacy and offer it to people so that they can learn. And so it doesn't take 17 more years for it to get to the, the general population. I want to know what you would say your legacy will be as a person. Like, what would you love? What mark would my you children. love to leave? I know they're so cute. And they children. look just like you and they're so fun. My children, you know, I could have thought about, uh, you know, a million different things about what kind of legacy and how I would love to change the narrative and create this muscle-centric medicine, which I'm doing. Yes. But ultimately to play a role in creating two great humans, that's my legacy. And you're really good at that, by I mean, the listen, way. It might be a small people be like, wow, you know, real underachiever, but... <laughs> No, but it's the, the hardest reality, thing in the entire world. Are you well, me? Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it's the hardest thing. I think it's probably hard to do it right, but to actually instill from a, such a young age information to a mind that's growing to be strong and courageous. That's what I want. That's what I want for my children to be able to stand up for what that they know is right and to be a worthy member, contributing member to society and to be their own best friend. And they can be each other's best friend too because they're so cute. No, they literally exactly. try to kill each other. Exactly. They were they were sweet to each other. The, I'm like, did you just the Leo try having your face thing to stab your sister with a nail? File? I need to tell you that the way that you're also living your legacy is besides, I think again, you have a lot of professional legacy that you will leave behind in a many many years. You're not going yeah, freaking yeah. anywhere, but. I literally sit in your house with your children and like they're eating gelatin marshmallows. I mean, you are you, in ways of the nutrition stuff. I just have to say you really walk the walk as a person. You you talk 
but you really walk too. Yeah. And I and I, I just really commend you for that too. And it's very, very sweet when we get to eat little gelatin marshmallows together. So yeah. <laughs> that's really nice. So that's really powerful. So in a funny way, I always say you have become this like really controversial figure for reasons that I can't explain only because I think the, the things you're talking about, which shouldn't be controversial, happen to be controversial. Yeah. But I want to talk more about just like your own experience with nutrition. I want to talk about your own like, you know, we get a lot of Dr. Gabrielle Lyon that is How boring. I feel so bad for people. Exactly. No, I could no. literally watch you all day. You're the most entertaining and like amazing and gorgeous person on earth. But I think that we get this side of you that is this fierce. That's pretty much all of you. But I want to I want to know also what your feelings and experience has been like with nutrition and and like how you've navigated this landscape on a personal and, you know, yeah. note. You know, when you were on my podcast, you were talking about how dietitians move into the dietetic space because they've had a bad relationship with food. And I graduated high school early and I moved in with my godmother and her name is Liz Lipsky. She's a real OG in the space. Hi, Liz also, Lipsky. also older. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, but not really. An OG in the functional medicine space. And I cool. moved in with her. I graduated high school early. I moved in with her. I worked for room and board. And it was at 17 that I really became interested in nutrition. And not for any body composition reasons. I was just so fascinated. Sure. After that, I realized that nutrition was the thing I was going to do. And I went to uh, undergraduate. And during that time, I actually spent um, a little bit of time at NAU. I don't know if you know that. I never really talk about this. No. Very, very short period of time. And this is Northern Arizona University yeah. up in the mountains. And I was so into, you know, I came from Hawaii. So I had been living in Kauai and it's really hipster. Vibe just so vibey, you know. The universes are doing weird things. Like, it's just so amazing, right? You know, Supernatural. Right, totally. When you're 17, it's just like my chakras are all aligned. Whatever. <laughs> Which is so funny to, to I even— I can't even hear you yeah, say this sentence. Right? It's wild. Super, super hippy-dippy. I was just really above and beyond. And I went to Northern Arizona, and I really wanted to connect with the earth. I can't believe I'm saying this. So if you are a listener but you on do my have, own— you do have that part of you. You're like but tatted. You, you kind of—you got that— you Yeah, got that but it's not something I get to talk about. <laughs> I love it. And I went to Northern Arizona and I was really interested in being macrobiotic and being more vegan. Mm, I got I really, I got very sick. Tell me what sick means I for you. I was exhausted. Mm. I started having like, my teeth were having issues. I was having bleeding gums. My hair was wow. falling out. It was just not good. I had no energy. I just couldn't maintain my iron stores, anything. Couldn't, my thyroid was a mess. <laughs> And I really didn't want to eat animal products. I was really against eating animal products. You know, I was seventy. You were young, hippie, hippie, and quiet. Totally. It was now in Arizona. And I really tried. I was reading these cookbooks and I was like obsessed with it. And I couldn't maintain my hunger. I was very high carb. Again, I was macrobiotic. I was training a lot. And I, I just was like obsessively thinking about food. I was Mm. really under eat and I was eating like tofu. the Minnesota was, experiment like the when you started uh, like even if you were eating enough your brain was still like constantly obsessed with food uh, I was like wow. obsessed. I would get on my bike with my backpack and I would ride to the health food store and I would I would be so hungry I would get I don't know almonds or whatever and then I was hungry an hour later and I was going to another store to get whatever can you imagine I had no time to do anything else other than try to cook Mm. try to make some of these macrobiotic meals, which if you're macrobiotic, good for you. I'm impressed because I couldn't do it. And I just started becoming more and more obsessed because I was so hungry. You're freaking hungry. Yeah. But I didn't realize that I likely wasn't consuming enough protein and I became wow. unhealthily ex like obsessed with food. 
And I started developing binge type behaviors. You know, I never threw wow. up. I would have never been characterized as, you know, Bulimic or anything like I that. I would have right? never been characterized as having an eating disorder, but I could not regulate. I was obsessed. I would go through periods where I would binge on food. And God, I can't even believe. Yeah. It's so on you. That's it's, it's so powerful. It, it's so it not you. It isn't because I was thinking about how I was feeling guilt. Like I didn't have the, I probably wasn't emotionally intelligent enough to be thinking about any of those other things, but I was literally starving. Wow. I need to hold you for yeah. a second because first of all, thank you for sharing that with us. It is something that you probably have not shared no. before and not. So no. I, I need to thank you for your vulnerability. Yeah. There's something so meaty, uh-huh, meaty in what you just said. We always think of eating disorders as starting in the brain. But for you, it started in the body and then it led to what happened in the brain. So we always think we need to do, if you went to a hundred therapists, they wouldn't have been able to help you at that time because your body was starving. So it wouldn't have mattered. The thoughts you had around food would not have been eliminated. Now, releasing the restriction and including meat actually would have helped, which is another tool that eating disorder therapists use. But the idea, again, that you know, people could have weird eating behaviors because they have a parasite. Like there's physical things that can happen in our body. Maybe I did, yeah. Exactly. Maybe actually from all the raw food you were eating. (laughs) By the way, you probably did have parasites. I mean, I'm sure I did. (laughs) Exactly. But it was manifesting in a way where, I mean, I remember the first time I ate chicken, I like cried. I felt so bad. You felt so guilty about it. I felt so guilty. But also, how'd you feel? A little better. So much better. (laughs) Exactly. I started to feel so much better. I also rarely talk about my experience coming off of veganism too. I was deathly afraid. I was deathly afraid to eat meat. I thought it wasn't going to be digested. People like, it's going to sit in your stomach for weeks and all this stuff. And I, I actually started with fish and I felt immediately completely different. It's it's really tangible how you feel yeah, it different. Was for, it was for me. So you had, you just always have had this relationship with protein. It's, it's so then manifest. So, so then I didn't even put two and two together again. Like maybe my emotional, my emotional <laughs> intelligence was probably the IQ of an ant or whatever at that time. And then I found myself in Dr. Donald Lehman's lab. And again, this is a world-class protein expert. Top of the top. The best. And this connection with protein and body composition really began to evolve. Wow. Yeah. So it's funny because your story is, even in this story, which is what some people would expect to happen with like food, like, okay, you have a restriction and then you have, you know, ruminant thoughts about the, you know, ruminating thoughts about that. For you, the story still does come back to protein though. Protein for you is a big part of your story and your destiny. Yeah. I I think that, yeah, it's kind of weird, but I do believe that that's true. I know. Isn't that a funny thing? Yeah. Like, protein's kind of your thing. I feel like the liver's my thing. Protein's kind of your thing. It's like a th- running theme of your life. But, you know, I also, when I think of protein, I think of like dense and like fire and like yeah. grounding and you are all of those things. It's pro- There's something like spiritual going on with you too in that. Well, I mean, I think it is very interesting that I happen to have landed in a world-leading protein experts lab. He's had many graduate students. And on students. the International Protein Board. Just right, like, this is a big deal. <laughs> This is it. This is the the whole podcast is about is this freaking board. And it it was just, there was a lot of serendipity because I could have been, I mean, he's had hundreds of students, but I was obsessed with the information. I was, you know, I would get to class early. I was very interested in training. I would sit in the front row. I got straight A's. I mean, I was very, at every office hour. Very Gabrielle about it. Yeah. I was like really low key, chill. Exactly. You know her. She's just like in Hawaii. Like, you know, exactly. I was like, dude, what? I got 97 on this? This is terrible. But 
Um, so for you, it also was not only a passion because you're like, oh, there's something good here, but also because for you, you were like, I know, like, I know how this felt for me and what it meant to me. That's, you know, we, probably we, not. Ex- no, well, not no, even like no subconscious. No, even... I was just I you were fascinated when you are in the presence of a master, you know it. Absolutely. And I sat in this guy's class and he is a master. And when a master speaks, unless you are a complete idiot, you owe them all your attention and you, you soak. Exactly. Listen. And this guy, the way he was holding a scientific integrity, the way in which he was asking questions, he's a genius. And I was so, I had a natural aptitude towards chemistry and sciences. I just am built that way that I was so fascinated, not just in the science, but the way in which he approached thinking. And that's how I feel about you, by the way. So you carried that legacy too through your work. It's been a 20 year relationship. Absolutely. With you and this incredible, brilliant genius, Don Lehman, and with yourself and protein we're learning about, by the way. <laughs> yeah, no, can't get, can't get this away. is from that. And it's carried me through. And, you know, part of the reason I do feel so passionate is because I, I do feel like I have an obligation to take this fine scientist and everything that he's taught me over 20 years. Been there bless that relationship. Oh every my gosh. phase of my life. Marriages, every, children, every, like every part tears, of your life. I can't believe I'm in this fellowship. This residency is terrible. What am I doing? Got a weird roommate. Like totally all those things, right? Exactly. Yeah. I, I think that what is often missing is people don't have those kinds of mentors anymore because they're distracted. They're on their phone. They're doing any, whatever the, they're, they're doing. I think people also get, so this is a really, really cool thing about you. Let me just tell you what's cool about you is that a lot of times people, and I see this a lot in the nutrition world and the medical world, they get so into their thing that they actually don't look at the research outside of it. And I don't feel that way about you at all. Mm -hmm. You are a true blue functional medicine doctor on top of everything else. You have muscle-centric medicine, of course, but you're not ignoring other conditions that people Mm -hmm. have, which I do see, which is that a lot of the more specialized we become in nutrition and medicine, the less we can look at the big picture. The way you do things so beautifully is you look at medicine as a part of the whole picture, not, I mean, muscle, as a part of the whole picture. And as opposed to just looking at muscle as what it does. It's like, how does muscle influence every single other part of our lives? And this is where I think it's really important to be a a well-trained physician and practicing within within your scope of practice. So I did two years of psychiatry at the University of Louisville. And then I did three years of family medicine at North Shore LIJ. And then I did two years of a clinical fellowship that was uh, research and patient care. That is a lot of experience. And then 20 years of patient experience also, you know, doesn't hurt. Altogether, listen, I don't recommend that pathway for anybody. Exactly. You literally need to just go out and throat punch yourself immediately uh, before you do that or consider that. But yeah, it's a lot of practical experience, which allows me to think critically and be a really good doctor. At least I I, think you are an exceptional critical thinker amongst other things. You're bold and brave and fearless and brilliant, but you're an exceptional critical thinker. So I want to just say one more time, Gabrielle, people are listening to this. Can you tell me two things that you know for a fact after your extensive experience, after helping thousands and thousands of people, what do you know for a fact about nutrition? Two things. Does it have to be about nutrition? Can it be about health? Oh, I love it. Go ahead. Train hard. Mm. To exhaustion, would you say? If you think that you have it easy for yourself, train hard. In your youth, train hard. Get into the ability and mindset to push yourself. I think it's physical and mental training. The mental follows the physical. The physical follows the mental. Train hard. Protect that body armor. Build it. You are never going to regret 
being as fit as you possibly can. And to me, that is lifting heavy things. Sure. Or fine. If you can't lift heavy things, you know, lift not as heavy things, but lift it to lift your per- perceived failure. Okay. Train. The second thing is prioritize your dietary protein. Just do it. It's important. It's it's true. Your it's fir- fact. Your first you meal protein. and your last meal of the day are your most important as you think about prioritizing protein. Do you want to give a, I know you have a number you use for one gram per pound ideal body weight is my recommendation. Ideal body weight, meaning again, if you're occupying a larger body, the weight that you would right. be in an ideal scenario, we'll call it. Right. Yeah. Which so, you might not know, but you like, know, so if I'm 110 pounds, I recommend 110 grams of protein. I know a lot of people listening are like, woo, that's a lot of protein. But totally achievable. And actually your Instagram is a wealth of information on how to get protein. By the time this airs, we might be starting the 28 day protein challenge as well. So I think people can jump in at this point. And if not, I'm sure you're going to run it again, but really amazing recipes, the importance of protein, everything like that. Where can people keep learning from you? Yeah. My website, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon. I'm obviously very active on Instagram. I have my own podcast. It's shockingly called the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show, which is so embarrassing. But the reason I named it that is so people could find it. YouTube, all the things. I have a great team. We have Colleen, Colleen Johnson, this amazingly capable PA. Brian Stepanenko is my uh, lead physician, former military. Just have a great team. Peter Roth. Incredible team. Alexia, Kylie, like the whole crew. Yes. And so if people want to work with you one-on-one, they can go to your website and there's different pathways they can do that. They can also work with the other doctor or PA yeah. in your practice so, too. Um, in order to work with me, you have to know someone and it needs Got to be it. a referral. So sure. if you know someone or you can apply. Oh, people a, know me now. This is the problem. Okay, there you go. So <laughs> you can apply. You it's, a, it's a purely referral-based yep. yeah. practice. So. Um, my other team members are amazing. I've trained them up. They're incredible. And they're practicing muscle-centric medicine with the same are. principles. Of and course. they, of course, have their own certifications, licenses, everything they need. Of course. To of practice course. too. Everything is top-notch. If I'm a practitioner and I want to learn from you, can you tell me about how I might yeah. do that? So I will be launching a practitioner program, uh, also application only. So they're going to have to get through. They're going to have to be interviewed. Okay, you guys, I'll, I'll be your referral for this too, but I can't guarantee you'll get through. Yep. So that will be amazing. And then Instagram's an easy way and it's, it's Dr. Gabrielle Lyon. Yep. And we have some like training programs. They, they can go to my website. A challenge. I'm launching a meal plan with Daily Dose. Oh, yes. A forever strong meal plan. I'll, I'll send it to you, actually. Okay. I have to tell you. The protein portions, if like people are worried about not getting a lot from a meal delivery service in your specific one, it's like amazingly gargantuan. Like that you like Trish, the owner of Daily Dose, yeah. like Trisha really gives it to you in the Gabrielle plan. So if it's something again where you're like, I just don't want a meal prep. I don't I don't know what meat quality is high. Yeah. Your plan specifically. Is That's great. Amazing. That's yeah. Yeah. Great. I'm so glad that I got to sit down and talk with you and you're on my show and I know that you'll be able to come back on mine and. Gabrielle, don't thank me. First of all, okay? You are a freaking rock star who every single day of your life puts yourself on the line to help other people. It is the honor of my life to have you on my show. I really, really mean that. I cannot thank you enough. And I know that my clients, listeners will get so much from you. Every word out of your mouth is a goldmine. Please follow her on Instagram. Especially the swear words. Exactly. (laughs) I know. I liked when you said the four letter thing. Please follow Dr. Gabrielle Lyon on Instagram. Please just be in her orbit. She is just the most useful resource that we have and again you always sell it straight and I just love you thank you so much love you too thanks 
Thank you so much for tuning in to the Quiet the Diet podcast. If you found any of this information relevant or you related to it, please feel free to share the podcast. It would mean the world to us. Also remember to subscribe so you don't miss any episodes and you can follow us on Instagram at Quiet the Diet Pod. We'll put the link in the show notes after each episode. Thank you again for listening and I can't wait to see you in the next episode.